Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gary Bruce about his excellent new book, Through the Lion Gate, A History of the Berlin Zoo, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Gary, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, Craig, and thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Well, Gary, we like to begin these interviews, as always, with asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Happy to. Uh... I I grew up in the province of Quebec in Canada, in a French-speaking town far in the north, and uh, ended up doing my undergraduate studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, uh, where I was uh, very interested in history. So, of course, I majored in chemistry um, because I was worried about the job market, uh, but quickly realized that uh, uh, university is really for what moves you, what you're interested in. Uh, and not simply about job preparation. So I switched to history, and uh, I'm very glad I did. Uh, it obviously turned out to be the right choice for me. Uh, when I was in third year of undergraduate studies at Queen's University, I opted for an exchange program and went over to Glasgow University, which was a riotous year. Uh, and it was also momentous for me personally because it was 1989-1990 that I was there. And as you and your listeners will well know, uh, in the fall of 1989, something dramatic happened in uh, Berlin when the wall fell. Uh, I then visited Berlin in April 1990, uh, which was a fascinating time to be there because it was when the GDR still existed. Uh, the wall had no meaning anymore, but it was still up. It was physically still standing. So when I arrived in April 1990 in Berlin, I remember getting off the train and heading towards uh, the center of town where uh, it sounded as if a bunch of people were clinking glasses at a wedding when you want the bride and groom to kiss. Uh, that constant sound, relatively loud, getting louder as I got to the center. And of course, it was what uh, what uh, people then called uh, these wall woodpeckers, uh, people chipping away at the Berlin Wall with their hammers and anything else that they might have had. And so I joined them, uh, and I also chipped away at the Berlin Wall. Uh, I still have the pieces in my office. Uh, so that was, that was life-changing for me, uh, to see this moment in German history. Uh, to experience it so viscerally. And I then, uh, after I finished my studies at Queen's, went to the University of New Brunswick in Eastern Canada for my master's, and then moved on to McGill University in Montreal, so many ways going back home for me, uh, where I did my PhD under Peter Hoffman, uh, who is uh, very well known for his work on the resistance to Hitler. Uh, and then at that time, I was also interested in resistance work, but uh, because of the recently opened archives in East Germany, 
I opted to uh, do something on East German resistance rather than World War II. And uh, that was my first book, uh, Resistance with the People. I dealt a lot with the June uh, 1953 uprising as well in that book. Uh, and moving on from that, after I, I got an academic position, I wrote uh, The Firm, The Inside Story of the Stasi. So it was in many ways sort of a follow-up to the book on resistance, uh, especially because I'd spent so much time in Stasi files uh, looking for, my, for information on my first book. Uh, and then this is a departure. This, this book on the Berlin Zoo is quite a departure for me. Yeah, I was. I wanted to change. Yeah, I was going to say I was just going to ask you as to as to why now then a change to the Berlin Zoo. Well, uh, I, I suppose like like East Germans, you know, I was getting a bit tired of the Stasi myself, <laughs> um, and I uh, I wanted to change the scenery, and I happened upon this book by Diane Ackerman called The Zookeeper's Wife, which uh, recently became a, a movie, but at the time it was quite a, a quite a popular book. And uh, uh, it's about the Warsaw Zoo and the zookeeper there and his wife who harbor Jews while they're trying to tend to this uh, makeshift and very sad zoo in Warsaw during the war. And I uh, was really uh, fascinated by the story and it got me thinking about what happened to German zoos during the war. And so I took a foray into the archives and uh, found some information that I thought was intriguing and just uh, continued from there. Hmm. So... This is obviously a topic that not a lot has been written about, particularly in English. Um, I believe yours is the only book in English on the Berlin Zoo. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with the history of it. If you could give just some background into the founding of the zoo, um, its first directors, um, just very brief. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the first zoo established in Germany. There had been other zoos established in Europe prior to the Berlin Zoo, uh, most notably London uh, in 1826, uh, which became the flagship zoo for Europe in many ways the world um, because of the access it had to its uh, to the empire. It could bring in a tremendous, tremendous variety and number of exotic animals. Um, the Berlin Zoo didn't have that advantage, but uh, it, it grew out of the, uh, the King's Menagerie that had been on Peacock Island. Uh, just outside of Berlin, which is still there, lovely a lovely day trip for a lot of Berliners and guests as well. Uh, so it was established in in 1844, and the real driving forces were a zoology professor called Martin Lichtenstein, who had uh, been in South Africa and had uh, traveled to London as well. One of these worldly sort of upper middle class Germans who was very curious about the world and uh, was eager to, to bring some of that information to Berliners uh, through an, a display of the natural world in uh, what would become the Berlin Zoo. And the other uh, driving force is, was his uh, friend and colleague, um, Alexander von Humboldt, uh, who will be uh, uh, very familiar to uh, you and uh, listeners. Uh, Alexander von Humboldt, the greatest naturalist of, uh, of uh, Germany's history, and uh, a very, very popular individual. Uh, lectures sold out, books sold out. Uh, uh, he, he, his influence was tremendous in getting a uh, getting a zoo in the Prussian capital. Hmm. Um, now you mentioned a little bit that there was in, grew out of the king's menagerie. Um, was the zoo 
originally intended for sort of a more upper crust audience or did they view it as a as a way to engage the the larger public workers um how important was that in their thinking well it was very important uh and it actually stands in stark contrast to the London Zoo. The London Zoo is really designed as a display of animals for the London Zoological Society and their guests and friends and family. So quite limited. Uh, working class really is not envisaged. But the Berlin Zoo is quite the opposite. Uh, it's open to the public, uh, to all members of the public, from uh, the day it opens its doors in 1844. And it also is very sensitive to price. So the board wants to make sure that there's opportunities for uh, people of all income levels to visit it. Uh, this means having the occasional sort of cheap Sunday and specials and that kind of thing. And uh, they're also really committed to having the zoo accessible to school groups. So uh, just about uh, uh, just about any school in Berlin would have access for field trips to the zoo. So it was quite advanced that way, quite egalitarian in its thinking. Um, particularly in the early years of the zoo, some of the most popular exhibits seem to be humans. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about one why they were so popular? Um, and, and I'll ask you some follow-ups about colonialism in a second. Um, but just sort of sketch us out how these exhibits came to be, um, where the idea came from, and and then we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, the I think this was the the aspect of the zoo that uh, I found most surprising, and uh, really, even as I was writing that chapter, I had to pause numerous times and, and give this some real thought about the fact that uh, we were dealing with humans in the zoo rather than animals, which is what we are, which are, is our frame of reference today. Uh, so the real impetus comes from an individual called Carl Hagenbeck. Carl Hagenbeck uh, comes from a gritty uh, area of Hamburg. Uh, he's an entrepreneur and he realizes very quickly that these zoos that are springing up throughout Europe uh, are going to need a supply of animals and he becomes a tycoon in the exotic animal trade. He also realizes that, that there will come a time when the zoos have enough animals and that uh, if he wants to sustain his empire he will need something else and he brings to the Berlin Zoo at one point some reindeer from Scandinavia and he has uh, the, the uh, indigenous people there, the Laps, uh, Laplanders, he has them uh, accompany these reindeer. So it's not really an ethnographic display as we would come to know them, but it's the first inkling, it's the first idea that he has that maybe people could also be displayed, so-called exotic people from around the world. Uh, and he begins with a group of uh, Inuit from Greenland in the Berlin Zoo, very small group. And over time, these shows grow. They grow to be quite enormous, uh, with uh, sometimes 50, 60 people uh, bringing animals along. And uh, they are displayed in not cages in the zoo, but enclosures. And they typically did... Uh, 
what would what we would call traditional uh, dances, uh, cooked traditional meals, uh, did crafts and that kind of thing for the entertainment of, of the Berliners who were watching. And these shows were staggeringly, staggeringly popular, you know, reaching even as many as 100,000 visitors in a day. Uh, I still remember one of my favorite stats that I found in the newspaper was that uh, on on one day on one of these shows, and because Berliners know these kinds of things, they're aware of them, uh, 23,000 liters of beer was served. So very, very popular shows. Yeah, I was I was struck by that reading the chapter, just how many people went um, to see these people. Um, and they would bring them all sorts of things, food, cash tips. Um, and and I, I do want to ask you about the people who were on display because you did tell one story of a group of them, and I can't remember where they're from now, um, who didn't want to leave. <laughs> uh, That's right. Uh, it was a Nubian group at the end of the 19th century, so from uh, uh, today, Egypt. And uh, they were, their time was up. These shows typically lasted four or five, sometimes six weeks. Uh, and then they would go on, often to another zoo in Europe or somewhere else. Um, they tended to be in Europe for, for several months. And the time had come for them to leave the Berlin Zoo. And uh, they refused, this group of Nubians refused, and defended themselves with, uh, with chains and whips. Finally... The director of the Berlin Zoo at the time, a man called Bodinus, uh, he was quite quite perturbed, didn't know what to do exactly, and called the police. And so the police came and eventually escorted these individuals onto uh, onto the carriages that were waiting for them, and then the carriages brought them to the train station. Uh, and uh, it wasn't clear at the time exactly what had happened, but uh, now we've been able to piece together through newspapers and some other sources, including Carl Hagenbach's memoirs, that uh, uh, these uh, these Nubian men had formed romantic relationships with German women and were reluctant to leave them. Uh, so that's why they were they were uh, attempting as much as possible to stay in Berlin. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that struck me about this chapter and that I really liked is that the people that were being displayed um, definitely had agency, um, and they they seemed to figure out how to sort of work their circumstances the best they could, um, either for food, money, um, romantic relationships. Um, I mean, it's certainly not a good thing uh, that they were put on display like this. Um, but you, you did you did attempt to sort of show their side of it um, in a way that I thought was insightful. No, you're, you're right. Uh, we can't deny the, the paternalism and the, the optics of having uh, a group of people on display in a zoo. It's certainly, uh, we recognize the power relationship there. There's no question. But... I think we also make a mistake to assume that the uh, individuals were simply passive and constantly being acted upon. That was also not the case. They uh, they were frequently out of the zoo. They weren't supposed to be out of the zoo. Uh, they weren't. They were supposed to stay in the zoo, but they were frequently out of the zoo. And uh, we know this. We know this because uh, the organizers are constantly complaining that they don't want too much interaction between the individuals on display and the Berlin public. But it continues to happen, and they're seen strolling. They're seen strolling around Berlin and what have you. Uh, so I think it is important. It's important to recognize. Uh, some of the agency. They, it was these individuals as well had formal contracts with the organizers. 
Uh, and in some cases, and again, this isn't the measure of all things, but in some cases, the, the contracts were relatively lucrative, uh, that the individuals actually had some, um, ended up with some uh, a relatively decent amount of money in their pockets. And again, that's not, <clears throat> that's not to say that these were um, uh, good practices by any means, but it's also worth recognizing um, and I take your point very well here, it's worth recognizing the agency of these individuals on display. Um, you mentioned in, in your talk about the, the history of the zoo that, you know, the Berlin Zoo is in stark contrast to, say, the London Zoo in terms of what it's for. Um, and what I was surprised by was that sort of the reluctance of the Berlin Zoo to sort of be a symbol of colonialism and or a symbol of, you know, Germany's colonial you know, as their colonial possessions expanded, um, they didn't seem as willing or didn't seem to be their mission to put on display Germany's colonial power in the way that the London Zoo clearly was. You know, they had people and animals from all their colonies and they could draw from those colonies. Um, and in fact, in the, in the human chapter in the, about the human displays, you, only one time did German colonials actually get put on display. Um, I'm wondering as to why this is, given that Germany was in such a, a fever to compete on the colonial stage, um, why didn't the zoo as an institution um, sort of aid in that? Um, when, it, when it seems to later in, in German history, it seems to aid in certain you know, political projects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, here I really have to uh, tip my hat to one of the great originators of animal human history, which is Harriet Ritvo and her great work, uh, The Animal Estate, because uh, she deals, she's the one who introduces this notion of, of um, uh, Britons being able to participate in empire by going to the zoo. It's a great, it's a great analogy, and I think it captures an awful, awful lot about the mentality of the time. Uh, so that's, that was my reference point, and that's where I didn't see the same kind of actions in uh, Berlin, I think one one aspect was that Berlin was just late coming to the game, so uh, coming to the colonial game. So 1844, the Berlin Zoo is established, but obviously Germany doesn't get colonies until 1884. So it's quite a long time that the Berlin Zoo is in existence, uh, and by now they've 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 established other kinds of patterns for the zoo, uh, including some uh, tremendous architecture and. The human zoo is already happening by the time that Germany acquires colonies. So there's there's essentially just a different history uh, in Germany that that leads Berlin and its zoo into a different path. Um, with the acquisition of colonies, and where we do see a real connection is with the animals. So uh, especially with the acquisition of German East Africa. So then the Berlin Zoo has much easier access to its to animals. They don't necessarily even have to go through Karl Hagenbach anymore. They can send out their own expeditions, uh, and they do uh, to acquire animals from from Africa. Uh, so there, the colonies do actually assist, and there is a real connection. But it doesn't necessarily promote colonialism in that way. Uh, and you're right that the the one group, the Samoans. Uh, who visit, uh, who come to uh, Germany uh, and are displayed in the zoo and meet with the Kaiser and what have you, they they are the 
first and last of the the colonial um, subjects to come and be put on display in Berlin. Uh, and it's mostly because of the colonial societies, uh, the several prominent colonial societies in Germany's concerns about having that interaction. In fact, uh, what is maybe humorous from our standpoint is that they're worried about uh, the, the colonial peoples being unimpressed, having their views of Germans altered for the worse from coming in contact with them. Uh, somehow this display of great power and great prowess and great industrial might and, and an advanced society, they feel, will be damaged uh, the more that the Samoans actually come in contact with the Germans. So that's, that is then, uh, that's then called off and it doesn't happen again. Uh, so it, it, I, I think, but just looking at the history of the period, you sort of see these why why colonialism doesn't necessarily find root in the Berlin Zoo the way it does in the London Zoo. Um, so we're creeping up towards the First World War. Um, obviously, big big changes, big shifts, um, and the zoo is 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 directly impacted in a lot of ways by the First World War. Um, you could talk a little bit about what it went through, its financial difficulties, um, why they were so intent on keeping it open, um, even in sort of the worst of times, um, and then and then I'll we'll go from there. The World War One chapter was, in many ways, the most difficult for me to write because the sources were quite thin. Uh, so you don't know as much about the zoo in World War One as I think we would like. Uh, the, the the truth is, of course, that it was a very, very difficult time that the, the British blockade made the import of foodstuffs very, very trying, very difficult for the Berlin Zoo. Uh, so many animals did die on that basis alone. Uh, the income was drastically reduced, which led the board to have to turn to the Kaiser on numerous occasions. To uh, to have him fill in the blanks with uh, in the financial uh, in, in in the books because the, uh, the zoo simply just didn't have didn't have enough money to cover what were becoming exorbitant costs and also uh, and also a decline in visitorship. Um, in many ways, it's it's the war itself is a, a major issue major problem for the zoo, but it's also the uh, the period afterwards when uh, inflation hits the Weimar Germany, and uh, at that point, the zoo is in, in many ways, much more difficult circumstances than it was during the war. Uh, and in the Weimar, in the Weimar period, uh, the zoo does shut very briefly for a few months, uh, but it's the, it's the only time in the history of the Berlin Zoo, that it actually shuts. When we when you think about it, as you well know, you think about the turbulent history of Germany uh, from 1844 until uh, when I finished the book, 1990. To think that those are the only months that the Berlin Zoo closes is quite remarkable, uh, and it gives some sense of just how difficult it was during the Weimar Republic. Uh, the The financial situation was simply catastrophic. Yeah, I was. I wanted to ask you about this. I was struck by the number of times the zoo was saved by Berliners um, through their generosity, um, even in the worst 
circumstances, they would donate money and 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 things to keep it open. Um, I don't know if you really if you found out anecdotally why this was so important to people living in Berlin uh, or not. Um, but if you could speak to that just a little bit. Yes. So it happens on uh, numerous occasions that Berliners themselves, uh, even though their situation is incredibly demanding, they uh, they uh, bring food, money, uh, they bring fuel, so sometimes wood and coal to try to keep the animals warm. Uh, if it's a if it's a bad winter during the war or what have you, and they do they do it in in World War One they do it in between the wars, uh, when newspapers are asking Berliners to dig into their pockets and come out and help the Berlin Zoo and they do, um, they do it uh, of course during World War Two as well they do it during the Berlin blockade, uh, when the Berlin Zoo suffered again tremendously. Uh, so uh, on, at numerous flashpoints in history. Uh, Berliners do uh, rescue their zoo. The state does as well. The state does try to fill in the gaps, but it's it really comes down to Berliners themselves. Um, and that connection, yeah, it's 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 not been very easy for me to figure out exactly why Berliners in particular, because it does seem to be idiosyncratic to Berlin, uh, not just so other other. Zoos in other cities in Frankfurt and what have you. They're also, they also have a connection to the population, but it's certainly not as deep, not as profound as it is in uh, Berlin. I've tried to figure out exactly why. It's um, I'm not sure it is. It, it's it's evident. Uh, it's I think related to the 19th century boom that Berlin goes through, which is both positive in terms of people being able to go on vacations, uh, more vacation time, a little bit more money in their pocket, and that kind of thing. Um, but it's also it's also a dizzying time. It's a disorienting time uh, when uh, Berlin is growing tremendously. Uh, it's it's a very, um, <clears throat> in many ways, sterile, sometimes dangerous urban environment uh, that uh, is really unrivaled in Germany. Uh, and I think it I think that tends to lead people um, toward the zoo, and I do sort of offer my conclusion, some thoughts about that, about um, Berliners in particular, but it also extends as the 20th century goes on to more than just Berliners, um, looking for solace, looking for uh, comfort uh, in in the zoo, in the animals, in the 19th century, and also also in the humans that are on display. Yeah, I, I I wasn't expecting you to have you know the the answer. Um, it was just something that I was I was fascinated by that they would come back over and over and over again to to financially or materially support an institution that was clearly very important to them throughout its entire history. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get to the Nazi period, I want to talk a little bit about how the view of the animals evolved. Um, sort of beginning with how they saw the animals, you know, sort of in, or, and how they organized them in the zoo, sort of in a, in, you know, taxidermy, um, mm-hmm. to, and then how they, you know, viewed the animals in terms of having emotions, being lonely, um, and how that evolved in the first, um, you know, first 
80 years or so of the zoo because um, the Nazi case is a, is a separate case and we should t tr treat that separately. Um, mm -hmm. So I just, I want to just give people an indication of, of, of how the animals themselves were viewed um, at first and then how it evolved. Right. Uh, well, I find, I found this actually fascinating uh, from my own knowledge that, uh, <clears throat> that the, the view of the animals evolves. So it's not, it's obviously not the animals that are changing. It's us. And mm. so that's what I, I think is a tremendous contribution from animal human history is to give this insights into, into the human species, uh, and how they are changing, how their views are changing. So the, uh, originally, which is maybe not that surprising, uh, the animals were viewed, uh, simply as, uh, objects to be displayed. Uh, they didn't have emotions. They, uh, were, uh, dispensable uh, in the London Zoo, for example, um, they just let the monkeys die uh, in the winter time, and then they could replace them the fall. Yeah, I, w I was staggered by that 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 they would just mm -hmm. let them go. <laughs> yeah, um, and that was just the that was just the mindset at the time. Uh, it wasn't that these zookeepers were particularly evil or anything, um, but that's just how people viewed animals. Uh, animals were were part of nature, and nature was to be subdued. Uh, there's have dominion over over the animals, which is uh, a biblical reference that still at the time held uh, an awful lot of weight. Um, there was a real feeling that that God had put humans on earth to dominate nature, and it was theirs to do with it uh, as they wished. So that was that was really the mentality, and you can see it in the early guidebooks as well, uh, the visitor guides to the Berlin Zoo. It's all about dominating nature, and that these once dangerous animals uh, can now be viewed by humans at their leisure, and we put them in their place, and that kind of mentality. Uh, and then it, it does it, it it changes it changes slowly, um, but certainly by 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 World War One and three years after World War One. The feeling is much more that animals can experience emotions, that animals can suffer, uh, that the uh, that there should be some interest in their well-being, that uh, humans don't have carte blanche to deal with uh, the other travelers on this planet as they will. Uh, and we begin to see it as well in the transformation of the method of display. So originally, zoos simply displayed by taxonomy, so by species classification. And it would make perfect sense for the Berlin Zoo uh, in the 19th century to have uh, 30 types of deer displayed in uh, different, in, in one cage, each deer in each cage uh, separately. Uh, we don't do that anymore, taxonomy and, and education in that, in that way, which is what motivated the Berlin Zoo at the time, uh, just doesn't hold water for us anymore. Uh, we're much more interested in ecology and in what we interpret as the happiness of the animals in captivity. Uh, so uh, bigger enclosures, herd animals being displayed in herds. Uh, this is the kind. This is the kind of uh, view we have now. So, uh, and really, this is a, a, again a tremendous, a tremendous work by Nigel Rothfels, Savages and Beasts, um, which talks about the origins of the zoo and this transformation into our understanding of their happiness. We're now motivated by their happiness and by uh, a respect for, the, for their existence on Earth 
that certainly wasn't the case. But it, 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 it was a very slow process over time, and I, I recognize that today's views are still controversial, but uh, at a minimum, we can say that their, their, their motivation uh, is not the same as it was uh, when these views were established. Yeah, one of the really, um, I think, highlights of your book is that you really, really, really demonstrate how the directors of the zoo, um, from the first director all the way up to when you finish your book, how they all have their own sort of imprint on the zoo. Um, and you really flush out their characters um, really well. Um, you get a sense of who each of these people really are. Um, and I obviously can't ask you about each one of them individually. Um, but I'm wondering if you have a favorite one, one that you found most interesting that you want to, you know, people to really know about. Mm -hmm. oh, hard, hard to pick my, my favorite uh, Berlin Zoo director. Uh, there certainly were a number of luminaries along the way. So, so Bodinas uh, really transformed the zoo in the late 19th century into a spectacular showpiece of Berlin. Um, he takes it from a rudimentary maybe not particularly pleasant location into uh, something that becomes a tourist destination from, for people around the world. Uh, but I, I, I think if I, if I had to choose, I would say uh, the first director of the zoo after the war, so in 1945, uh, first female director of any zoo, Katerina Heinrod, and herself quite remarkable woman. Uh, she had, uh, uh, she during the war, uh, had to fill in when some of the zookeepers were called to the front. And uh, she nearly died from a crocodile bite when she was trying to feed it and was very, very close and practically last rites. Um, but she recovered uh, somewhat miraculously and uh, emerges after the war to become the first female uh, director of a German zoo, which is a, a, a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, and she really, really saves the zoo. Uh, there, there's no question, when you read this material, there's no question that that zoo should have shut down in 1945. It only had 90, 91 animals. Uh, there were, there were corpses, human and animal corpses all over the zoo. There were, uh, there was destruction and no kind of infrastructure really to speak of. Um, of course, it was dire straits in Germany as well. So food and, and, uh, and, and fuel and heat. Uh, for the zoo and for the animals was, was practically non-existent. Uh, and still, somehow, in those circumstances, uh, Katerina Heinrod uh, resuscitates the zoo almost single-handedly and, uh, and makes it once again into a showpiece of the city. Yeah, I was, like I said, I was, I was struck by, the, by, by her, uh, definitely, and, and just all the characters that had inhabited that position uh, throughout the history of the zoo. All right, uh, let's now turn to the zoo under the, in the Nazi period. Um, when we talk about the zoo itself, I think it might be helpful if you give everybody just a, a brief overview of Nazi environmental policy, um, because this is an area that people have started to study a little bit more in depth recently, um, because they, they have sort of very progressive thoughts about the environment. Um, let me talk about the policy, and then we'll talk about how that fits into their worldview. Well, I might, I might say uh, that there's probably better people than me to talk about uh, the environmental policies. Uh, 
I was particularly interested as, as, in a subset of that, I would say, which is their policies towards animals. Uh, and there, uh, they really do, they really do put their money where their mouth is and they, uh, bring in very, very advanced for the time animal protection laws. Uh, so the animal protection law itself that's passed in Nazi, in Nazi Germany is uh, the most advanced in the world. It prescribes two years in jail for anybody who as much as mistreats an animal. Uh, they also do uh, a number of things to protect animals. They outlaw uh, cockfights. They outlaw the clipping of dog ears. They outlaw uh, hunting with buckshot. Uh, even Even restaurants are required to... Uh, boil lobsters quickly uh, to bring their suffering to an end. So this is remarkable, especially because as people know about the Nazi period, the paradox about how they're treating humans and animals is, uh, is, is enough to make your head spin. Um, so that, so the, so their uh, interest and concern about uh, animals is, uh, is 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 real. Uh, eventually, it will be sacrificed on the altar of war and conquest. We know that. But at the time, especially before the war, it is very real. And the other, the other uh, major advance that the Nazis make is to outlaw vivisection, which is surgery on live animals. Now, animal protection societies have been asking for this for decades and decades from practically every German government, and the Nazis implemented uh, almost immediately, without question. Uh, so on one level, the Nazis look incredibly advanced in their treatment of animals. Yeah, and and so, <clears throat> but there's a sinister side to this, um, too. Link, how does this, um, how does the zoo, I guess, in particular, fit into their into the way they view the world? Um, you know, they view how they view nature, um, and then sort of their place in it, and 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 it's all very hierarchical. Um, yes, so that's right. So. Uh, the Berlin Zoo, especially under its director at the time, Lutz Heck, uh, plays a very important role in communicating the Nazi message about race, about a hierarchy among races. Uh, and Lutz Heck and the Berlin Zoo use the animal world as an analogy for that. Uh, demonstrating, for example, that uh, that in nature, when races intermingle, uh, the product is inferior, they would say. Uh, that clearly uh, there's a preference for predators. You know, predatory animals are uh, strong, they are skilled, uh, they dominate, and these are the animals to be admired. So the, the Berlin Zoo does take the Nazi message and communicate it uh, to the public in this way. And Lutz Heck is very, very happy to do so. Uh, the director of the Berlin Zoo is very, very close with leading Nazis. He's close with Hermann Goering. He has interactions with Joseph Goebbels. He provides Hermann Goering with his lion cubs, for example. Uh, uh, some listeners would know about Hermann, Hermann Goering's penchant for these lion cubs that he, that he lived with until they became... Uh, of an age that they would be dangerous, and then Lutz Heck from the Berlin Zoo would go to Hermann Goering's house and provide him with new, new lions and uh, take away the ones that had, that had gotten a bit bigger. So uh, uh, he was he was very interested in promoting the Nazi message. He believed that his father, who had also been uh, the director of the Berlin Zoo for nearly forty years, 
Uh, he also was was an ardent Nazi. Uh, he he believed in the message of uh, of racial hierarchies and not intermingling, uh, and uh, and and other kinds of Nazi messages like that that would also, in their view, resonate about the animal world. Yeah, I, I was I was struck by um, Hermann Goering's relationship to the zoo. Um, I mean, I knew about the lion cubs. Um, it, it hits you when you see the pictures you have in your book um, of him holding a lion cub. Um, can you talk about um, Hermann Goering specifically? Did you did you look into this um, as to why maybe on a on a personal level he was so interested in this um, and and what he did to ke- sort of keep the zoo going even during the war and sort of make sure they had not everything they needed, but um, really until the very end, the last couple of years of the war when things really got bad. The zoo really didn't suffer too, too much, um, it seems, during the early stages of the war. Well, uh, I, to ask your question, I don't, I don't know why Hermann Goering was interested in those lions. That's a great question. Uh, what I can say, though, is that it would have been well known that he was interested mm. uh, in those lions and uh, promoted himself as a, as a, uh, as a lover of animals, uh, hey, you know, the images of Hitler with Blondie, his dog, were also extremely common in the Third Reich. But this, this, the image of Goering with his lines, uh, that was on postcards, uh, that ran as shorts before the main feature in movie theaters. So, uh, Germans at the time would have been very familiar with that image of, of Goering as a, uh, and his pet lions cuddling them and, and uh, you know, play, playing with them in his house and those kinds of things. Uh, but he does do his best about uh, to keep the Berlin Zoo going as much as he can. Now, in 19, already in 1941, it's bombed not too badly, uh, but in 1943, it's uh, it's bombed mercilessly and uh, tremendous damage and tremendous animal suffering as well. Um, so there's only so much Goering can do, of course, uh, to try to protect the zoo. But he does uh, uh, he does provide it, uh, finances as much as possible. Uh, and uh, a few other the small things that he does. He tries to uh, ship off some of the animals at the outset to to zoos that are maybe a bit safer. But of course, the problem is there's no zoo that's really that safe uh, in Germany during the war. Uh, so he does try to protect the zoo as much as he can, but there's not a lot he can do. Uh, the uh, but what you suggested as well, which is really I, I think again eye-opening, is that uh, the zoo remains incredibly popular during the war. Uh, in fact, uh, and I think this is the stats that surprised me most, the Berlin Zoo has its greatest attendance in its history up to that point, not since, but up to that point, has its greatest history, uh, has its greatest attendance in its history during the war, during the Second World War. And this uh, is also echoed at uh, the Frankfurt Zoo, the Halle Zoo, the Leipzig Zoo. The zoos are incredibly popular during the war. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was struck by that too. I, I was wondering if it was escapism, um, trying to put their mind on something else other than the war. Um, I mean, they did have a lot of variety of entertainments, though. They had theater and uh, music. So yeah, I, I, it, it was fascinating that that was the case. Um, I do want to backtrack a little bit on you and ask you about Albert Speer and wanting to move the zoo. Um, and this was quite a, a controversy, quite a problem. Um, mm-hmm. so if you could talk a little bit about 
uh, about this and the, the sort of the rivalry between the director and Speer about the zoo and maybe opening another zoo and all that. Right. Right. Well, I was really pleased to find this. This was in the, in the Bundesarchiv in the Federal Archive in Lichterfelder in Berlin. It was a, a great correspondence between, uh, between Lutz Heck from the Berlin Zoo and, uh, um, and Basically, Berlin city planning and Speer's letters are there too. It was really, it was really uh, quite dramatic and, and, and quite a uh, uh, an entertaining, in a way, find for me. Uh, but yes, it, it became clear early on that uh, Speer was going to uh, remake the city of Berlin and in the image that both he and Hitler had agreed upon. And this required a major uh, north-south boulevard. Uh, and the Berlin Zoo was essentially in the way. Now, what Lutzak had done just before Speer uh, begins his planning, which turns out to be a, a, a tremendous error, is he had suggested that a second zoo be built in the Grunewald, in, the, in a big park-like area. Uh, in Berlin, uh, and he had a bit of a different concept for the zoo. It would be more open air, more enclosures, uh, no no cages, that kind of thing. Uh, people could see it from walking along the paths as well. They wouldn't necessarily have to pay admission to see everything uh, in the zoo. But uh, Lutek was just so uh, excited about the zoo and about displaying animals that he thought a second zoo in Berlin uh, would be a good idea. Uh, well, Spare, of course, used this as an opportunity to say, well, maybe the zoo should be moved to there, to the Grunewald, so that he can have access uh, for his major building projects. Uh, at which point, uh, Lutzek said, no, the second zoo is a very bad idea, uh, and that that would destroy the zoo, and of course the zoo has to remain where it is, with its iconic historic buildings, uh, its, its uh, huge terrain which uh, allowed Berliners to take in the airs and and uh, and because of its uh, association with Berlin at the location that it's at. So he really fights Spear on this uh, and uh, is determined that the zoo is not going to move after all. And uh, uh, Spear seems to, seems to pay it no mind. Uh, he had already moved the zoo in Nuremberg to make way for his monumental architecture there. So it seemed that he was determined to do the same thing in Berlin, and he was not going to uh, worry whether the the, the lowly uh, zoo director Lutz Heck opposed his plans. Uh, and as it turned out, the war commenced in 1939, and that put the uh, prospect of moving the zoo on the back burner. On the back burner, because uh, it you, you point this out in your book that they were willing, Speer was willing to do it under tremendous financial costs. Um, it was going to be extremely expensive um, to move the zoo. Um, and I, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that, that he didn't care about the cost. But uh, um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I get that in because I, I found that sort of interchange uh, very fascinating. Okay, so the, the war ends. You've, you've already talked a little bit about what the condition of the zoo was after the war. Uh, pretty bad. You mentioned 91 animals left. Um, and you mentioned the direct, the new, the director after the war. Um, let's talk about the zoo in divided Germany. Um, and sort of the, the east west divide, particularly, I want to talk a little bit about East Germany, um, and how they used the zoo sort of as a way of 
trumpeting international communism, success of the GDR, all that. And, and the director, um, who was a Nazi and then became a socialist. Um, yes. And became very famous. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll hit some of those things and I'll ask you some mm -hmm. follow ups. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yes, of course. So after the war, the, the, the city is divided. Uh, if it's not obvious that it's permanent uh, in the early years after the war. It becomes rel relatively clear that the, the situation is not going to resolve itself in the immediate future. Um, and so in 1955, now with the, uh, with the division relatively permanent by then, uh, East uh, Germany decides to uh, build a zoo in its, in its zone of East Berlin. Uh, and it becomes a great societal project, a tremendous amount of participation by East Germans, tremendous excitement about the project. Uh, and it was clearly to rival the original zoo, which ended up in West Berlin uh, after the war. Uh, and the, uh, the communists felt that they had a huge advantage in that they could access some of the animals from their... Uh, uh, from their socialist brother countries, um, such as Vietnam, uh, which supplied uh, an awful lot of the animals in the first years uh, to the East Berlin Zoo, uh, and uh, different different factories contributed to the uh, to the zoo. They would sort of have these. Uh, uh, fundraising campaigns for a particular animal, for example, especially uh, if it were related somewhat to uh, to the kind of uh, product that they produced. So, for example, the uh, uh, you know, some fridge, some refrigeration company purchased a uh, polar bear for the for the East German Zoo, uh, and this kind of thing. So it, it was it was it was a really uh, major project, and uh, you know even up to uh, the collapse of East Germany and unification of Germany in 1990. Uh, East Germans uh, really, really held that uh, that uh, zoo in East Berlin close to their hearts, and uh, not the least because of the director you mentioned, Heinrich Data, and uh, Data was uh, he was the only director in the history of the zoo so from 1955 until until the end in 1990. Uh, he was the director, uh, and he would have been very well known to East Germans through his radio programs, and he was constantly interviewed, and he had some really uh, terrific successes uh, with the zoo. And it is interesting that he did, he was he was uh, a Nazi, especially in his student days at the University of Leipzig, and he uh, didn't talk too much about it. But what's also interesting is that when he does. When he does become the director of the East Berlin Zoo, he does tone down at least the rhetoric around his uh, around his zoo. So, you know, if a giraffe is born in the zoo, it wasn't always a great a great victory for socialism or anything like that. Um, he he just talked about it in biological terms and and in, uh, in in terms of animal populations and things like that. So he did he did try to uh, step back from being too much of an ideologue. With the uh, with, with in his position as director of the East Berlin Zoo, um, and uh, sometimes I think of the movie Goodbye Lenin at the end, where it's uh, it's the 
it's the astronaut or cosmonaut uh, Sigmund Yen who's imagined as leading East Germany in a in a kinder and um, more progressive way. And uh, I think it could have easily been Heinrich Data. Uh, East Germans that would have really resonated with East Germans as well. Very well respected figure uh, who uh, really nobody had a bad word to say about. Him. Yeah, he, you made it, it was very clear in your book that he was very well liked. Um, even in the West, he had the respect of colleagues um, yes. in the West. Um, yeah, including, including his friend, uh, the director of the West Berlin Zoo, Katrina Heinrich. Yeah, I, was, I found that story about the escaped baboon um, fascinating, <laughs> that he, he the, filled out all the paperwork and captured the baboon and drove it, drove it to West Germany himself um, <laughs> through, great, through great annoyance, I'm sure, to him. Um, Okay, so as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, um, what are one or two things you would like people listening and people who read the book to take away from it? Well, I think I, when I started this project, I, I was a bit concerned that some of the major histories of Berlin didn't really mention the zoo. So Alexandra Ritchie's uh, Faust Metropolis, for example, which is a terrific book, uh, talks about the zoo in passing, but doesn't give it any attention on, uh, in, on its own. Uh, and uh, Riba's uh, couple-volume history of of the of Berlin also does not really even give it a footnote. So one of one of the most important takeaways for me from the project is that the Berlin Zoo is not a footnote. It's it stands on its own as a topic of importance. Uh, I just uh, cite, for example, in the 19th century, the biggest restaurant in uh, Berlin was in the zoo. You know, place for 12,000 guests. Uh, it was the zoo was much more than just a display of animals. It was a stage on which Berlin life played out. People went there to see, to be seen. Charities held fundraisers there. Uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was just the site of Berlin society. Uh, it wasn't the only site, but it was certainly one of the most important sites, and uh, for many for, uh, many points in the history, the most popular. So I think that's one important takeaway, is to, to elevate the Berlin Zoo uh, to an importance that it deserves in the history of Berlin. Um, the other, I think, important takeaway is that uh, I was really struck by how Berliners throughout history, as they see reflected in the zoo, are aware of the pitfalls of their own civilization. Uh, life in the modern industrial societies is difficult, and people recognize that. It requires, uh, it requires us to work uh, typically long and hard. Uh, the environment can awfully be, often be deadening. Uh, the zoo offers an escapism. It offers a way of looking at life in a different way. It sees it in many ways it's a little bit nostalgic, uh, uh, back to a golden era when people lived more in harmony with the environment. Uh, so, so that I think is really important about the Berlin Zoo. It was a mirror for Berlin society. And uh, in that mirror, people did not always see reflected a society that they thought was perfect. Uh, people, uh, Berliners throughout history, have been uh, extremely aware of the limits uh, of their society and that even though uh, society is essentially more advanced now, 
um, that a lot has been lost, especially the connection to nature and the connection to one another. Well, thank you for that. Um, I want to say before I ask you our final question, uh, this is a great book. I uh, really enjoyed it. It has lots of great pictures in it, too. Um, never underestimate the, the power of good pictures. Um, um, so, but before I let you let you go, um, what are you working on now? Well, I'm just starting to look at uh, uh, a project on Night of the Long Knives. So, uh, in the past two books, I've really enjoyed using essentially a micro history approach to illuminate a bigger issue in history. So, with the firm, my book on the Stasi, I looked at small districts, uh, sort of a geographically limited uh, approach and uh, really got to know those two small districts of the Stasi and uh, how they operated in them. So that was that micro-history uh, I really enjoyed writing. And this I also see as a micro-history, taking one institution and looking at it under a microscope and seeing what it can tell us about broader trends. Uh, so I thought I would uh, uh, move into the Nazi period and try something similar. Night of the Long Knives, as you know, is uh, June 1934, uh, really the first the first murderous rampage by the Nazis. And I feel that it's been not forgotten, but uh, put put under or, or fallen under the shadow of uh, some of the later atrocities, uh, which for understandable reasons historians have been more interested in. But this being the first, I think it offers an opportunity to to look at questions about of, of complicity of the German public um, at a time when the president was still alive, Hindenburg is still alive, um, uh, the Nazis are not precarious, but uh, they haven't solidified their position quite yet. Uh, and, and here we have a German population that is willing to accept state-sanctioned murder. Well, that sounds fascinating, and uh, there's no, no pressure, but uh, hopefully when you finish, you'll, you'll come back on the show and talk about it with us. Um, <laughs> um, so I want to thank you again for uh, being on the show. Um, I really enjoyed having you. Um, and I also want to thank everybody for listening to New Books in German Studies, uh, again, part of the New Books Network, and we will see everyone next time. 